You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. Now this is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Electronic artist Moby lived through the gritty exuberance of underground rave culture as well as the decadence of mainstream success. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Moby joins us for a conversation about his new memoir, Porcelain. Then we'll review the new album from Riot Girl pioneer Kathleen Hanna and the Julie Ruin. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's Porcelain by our guest this week, Moby. That song comes off his 1999 album, Play, which was a a huge album for Moby, a breakthrough to a mainstream audience. It was an unprecedented success for any electronic artist, really, and it helped make Moby the public face of techno for many listeners. Porcelain is also the title of Moby's new memoir. The book documents his time coming up in the club scene until just before play was recorded. And it's a really amazing book, Greg. To me, it ranks as one of the great all-time musical autobiographies right next to Beneath the Underdog by Charlie Mingus. Uh, We're really happy to have Moby in the studio. This book is blowing both of our minds. Oh, thanks. What an accomplishment. Congratulations. Why, Moby, write a book? It's a good question. Because I, when I was growing up, I assumed that the only people who write memoirs or autobiographies were like the very old, the very accomplished or reality TV stars. <laughs> if I was just thinking of writing about myself, I didn't think it was going to be that interesting. But I wanted to write about New York mm. in the late 80s into the early 90s, about the rave scene, the early New York club scene, about sobriety and then the lack of sobriety. So that was what led me to want to write this, where it's like trying to like shoehorn all these different ostensibly disparate things into one book. So it's like me, New York, the weirdness of watching New York go from being this like crack damaged, gang riddled, AIDS destroyed place (laughs) to being, you know, the gentrified New York of Mayor Giuliani. That no one could afford to live in. And and as a young kid, uh, I mean, early 20s guy uh, living in New York on practically no money, it was one of the most exciting times of your life, it sounds like. It was. On the surface of it, like New York in 1989 was the worst place on the planet. (laughs) It was dangerous. I mean, super dangerous and filthy. And you took your life in your hands doing anything. And... Like I remember a friend had all these locks on his door to keep the crack addicts out and the crack addicts were very like motivated and rational. They just cut a huge hole in the wall (laughs) next to his door to bypass the the locks. So, but so, you know, it was this gang destroyed, rotten place and I was so happy there. I think part of it is just a function of youth. Like what I've I've learned and maybe this is a very self-evident thing to say is 
as I get older and I become nostalgic for the past, partially it's a past that doesn't exist anymore. And partially it's just nostalgic for not being old. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. had we been 22 in a suburb of Dayton, we'd probably be, be waxing nostalgic about what Dayton was like in 1989. So you're really an outsider in New York. You're an outsider because you're sober, you're Christian, you're vegan. I mean, you didn't fit in in any way, shape, or form anywhere, but especially New York. And that was and one of the things that was so magical for me is here I was, this straight, Caucasian, vegan, sober Christian, DJing in clubs that were gay, African-American, and Latino, (laughs) and filled with every drug that had ever been invented. And it felt like I felt so honored that they let me in, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. because I had grown up, you know, in a very sort of ostensibly banal Caucasian Connecticut, nice alliteration there, environment. And then suddenly, just by going a few miles west, I found myself in this urban environment where, and I was listening to music that came from traditions that I knew nothing about, whether it was hip hop or house music or dance music. And it was, it was like being the most excited anthropologist or like cultural musical historian. And I got to be a part of it. By the mid eighties, a lot of white people music had become kind of anemic. Mm. Like I think of some of like the mumbly stuff coming out of England and some of like the guitar bands. Like they weren't bad, but it almost felt like they were too bored to care. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, oh, sh-. like like pavement. Like I love pavement, yeah. but like their whole ethos was like, well, we got nothing better to do. Might as well like detune our guitars and play a song. And then being in the hip-hop world in the mid to late 80s, or the house music world, especially house music, where it was like it was their answer to AIDS. It was their answer to these ruined urban environments. So as a result, it didn't feel elective. You know, it felt like this essential form of survival. Like, in order to be alive, they had to go into these nightclubs and reinvent themselves and reinvent their environments and not just exist in this AIDS-blasted urban environment. There was like an urgency and a beautiful like celebratory desperation Mm -hmm. that I felt in the 80s was missing from our white brethren's music were rock and roll. Move the body and I rock notes like an instrument playing in the right pitch. Rock the left turntable and switch to the right is what I'm saying to the DJ playing while the crowd is playing. I keep rocking. I don't ruin the pace, set it off. Check one, two in the place. Don't let up and keep pumping. Got the groove, you ain't that something. So when the music got your soul, yo, just let it roll, let it roll. So you sign this little label called Instinct and start releasing singles that become anthems at the height of the first rave movement in 1990, 91, 92. In the book, you capture really well that sense of life and adventure and energy and exuberance. Two years, and then it's kind of over, right? You know, much like the psychedelic moment of 67 and 68, you know, it's not long before 
darker drugs, darker moods, darker music comes in, and this idea that the the uh, universe is one, and, yeah. and there are no limits to the art or to ourselves, you know, it was like a flash, and then it was gone. It's kind of like a Pandora's box. Like, you open it up, and at first everything's beautiful, and it so quickly turns dark. There's one part in the book where I talk about going to my favorite nightclub, and I hadn't been there in a while. It was called NASA. And I walk in, and all of a sudden, like, the drugs had changed, the music had changed, and people were just, like, lying on the floor rather than dancing. Like, no one was hugging each other anymore. They were just staring into space. And suddenly I realized it hadn't just happened. Like, someone had actually curated the darkness. Mm. Like, it was a choice. And it felt very off-putting to me because I wasn't doing these drugs, so, like, the darkness didn't make sense to me. What's striking to me is that at that point, just a couple of years into your career, you already thought of yourself as a has-been. I've been a has-been so many <laughs> times. Like, by 1993, like, I was already kind of like a footnote from the rave <laughs> And you just had this massive club hit go, which was basically, you know, conceived by you in a bedroom, uh, mm-hmm. right, with very cheap equipment. And you were the talk of the town for six months, and then nobody, nobody cared a year later. Yeah, and it was heartbreaking. first had a degree of success, I loved it, and I was very sad when it went away. <laughs> but then it came back, and then it went away again. And then it came back, and then it went away again. So like over time, the, there's been a paradigm shift. And so now I basically just assume that the success is gone. Assume that my relevance ended a long time ago. So that way, if I have a degree of success or relevance, like it's a pleasant surprise. When I was growing up, I really thought I was going to make music that no one would ever listen to. You know, my first punk rock band, the Vatican Commandos, we put out a seven inch and it sold 200 copies. And I thought that was like un- unimaginable success. There are billions upon billions of pieces of music available for anyone to listen to at any point. For someone to take their time and make an effort to listen to something I've done, one person doing that is amazing. Hmm. You know, and it's sort of unhealthy and kind of sick when a musician or any or a writer or anyone starts like depersonalizing a group of people and saying that like you only have legitimacy if you're reaching mass numbers of people. You know, you have legitimacy if you love what you're doing and if one person also loves what you're doing. Sure. You know, and anything more than that is just like a magical bonus. like that period of not feeling relevant anymore freed you up to make a record where you're able to include just about everything that has ever interested you musically. 
1995, you put out the album Everything Is Wrong, which is musically, I mean, everywhere. Gospel, house, hardcore punk, ambient, you name it, it seemed to be in there. So I, I take uh, Everything Is Wrong, Moby, as you saying, okay, I've got nothing to lose. I'm just going to make a record that I love, and, and maybe nobody else will love it. I think it's a hybrid between, like, a lifeboat and the way a three-year-old would make breakfast. <laughs> you know, like... Where the three-year-old's like, I like my Matchbox cars, and I like Oreos, and I like butter, and <laughs> I like the dog. So let's put that all in breakfast, you know. Or yeah. the lifeboat thing of like, uh-oh, the flood's coming. Throw the sink <laughs> and the cat and my comic books and whatever into the lifeboat and see if it'll <laughs> hold all of it. So that was kind of the ethos with the album because I didn't think I'd ever be allowed to make an album mm -hmm. and I didn't know if I'd ever be allowed to make another album so I just thought like why not see what I can shove into this record Well, and some people thought you were trying to assure that you wouldn't be able to make another album, like when you did Animal Rights. I don't remember your review, Greg, but I loved Animal Rights. Right? Hmm. You know, all of a sudden, the king of techno, the face of techno, remember when you were on every magazine briefly mm -hmm. as the face of techno, makes a tribute album to death metal, essentially, <laughs> but with drum machines. It's politely referred to as the career-killing album mm -hmm. yeah. by my manager and the people who work for him. Yeah. This one moment I had in 1995, I was at a festival in Denmark and I was in the dance tent with, I think it was like Black Dog and LFO and Saint Etienne and a bunch of other very lovely, polite electronic musicians. Mm. <laughs> there were maybe 10,000 people in there and no one was dancing. And then I walked to the main stage and I remember, I think it was Biohazard were playing <laughs> and people were going nuts yeah. and people were dancing. Mm. And all of a sudden I realized like, what what's going on here like all the energy is happening on the rock stage and I just thought oh let me see what happens if I make a guitar based record mm -hmm. there wasn't really much thought behind it it was just the visceral satisfaction of playing electric guitar and yelling played as if you were a member of Sepultura or Biohazard. You know, those poor keyboards would go flailing across the stage. Mm -hmm. You would end the show, you know, uh, half-naked, sweaty, exuberant, standing atop these keyboards. Sometimes, sometimes naked. And just the energy level. You always played like that. And now we're in the era of what they call laptronica, somebody <laughs> hitting mm -hmm. a button on a laptop. You, you always seem to want to put a show on. Yeah, that, again, it just... Maybe it's what I grew up with, mm -hmm. but like I grew up seeing Bad Brains and Black Flag right. and Minor Threat and The Misfits and like the bands would be sweaty and they'd be jumping around and the audiences would be sweaty and they'd be jumping around. And then when I first stood on stage as a solo performer, even though I was playing electronic music, it mm -hmm. just made sense to jump around. Yeah. And maybe in my sort of quasi-solipsism, I didn't stop to notice that no one else was doing that. <laughs> Sometimes I'd be at these raves and I would pay more attention to the audience. Mm -hmm. and the audience was like, you know, sweating and having the time of their lives. And you just sort of, you'd ignore the DJ. 
Yeah. The DJ yeah. would be standing there doing technical stuff. I'm like, oh, they're making the music. The audience is going crazy. But at least there was craziness going on. People would just be outraged. Like, you know, you're putting your face on these magazine covers and you're, you know, you're totally against the culture of dance music where the DJ was kind of this anonymous shrouded figure nobody was supposed to know mm-hmm. who the djs were you're a sellout you know you're making eight thousand bucks a year you're a sellout you yeah. know and you didn't seem to care at all about any of that it, it, it didn't seem to bother you i think a lot of djs back then came from the world of djing you know a lot of electronic musicians just came from the world of electronic music and there was an anonymity there but I came from the world of new wave and punk rock. So like if you made a record, you put your name on the cover of the record. And if you played a show, you jumped around on stage. And if if you did an interview, you let someone take your picture. Mm. So to me, that just seemed like a natural function of being a musician who makes records. I didn't know there was some magical virtue in remaining anonymous. You don't sort of wrap it up in a nice bow at the end. Like, oh, it, it all ended happily ever after. Your career is in disarray. You're making what you think will be your last recorded work, you know, which turns out to be play, which, in, you know, ironically becomes your best-selling album of all time. But you're in a dark place when the book ends. I thought there was something both perverse and kind of endearing about that, about like basically ending the book on the day that should have been the beginning of the book. With, with play and the Grammys and the success. Yeah. And then hopefully that will become a second book. Because it's interesting because you, you were saying like, oh, well, the book ends right before the album Play comes out with the assumption that when Play came out, things got better. It's like, no, things got much worse. Like, do you remember the movie Gremlins? Uh, sure. And how you're not supposed to like feed gremlins after midnight <laughs> yeah. or they kind of metastasize into evil. Like, that's what happens in the second book mm-hmm. is like you take the insecurity, you you know, you take all these issues and you feed them fame and attention and alcohol and drugs and money and everything goes way darker. Why does my heart feel so bad? Why does my soul After a short break, we'll continue our conversation with Moby about the enormous mainstream success of Play. And later, we'll review the new album from Kathleen Hanna's band, The Julie Ruin. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
rock y'all, non-stop y'all, to the beat y'all, the body rock y'all, so let's rock y'all, non-stop y'all, to the beat y'all, the body rock y'all, so let's rock y'all, non-stop y'all, to the beat y'all, the body rock y'all, so let's rock y'all, non-stop y'all, to the beat y'all. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRogatis, and that's a track called Body Rock from our guest this week, Moby. That song was just one of the hits from his uh, 1999 album, Play. And Moby's also the author of a fantastic new memoir called Porcelain, which covers his career until right before Play was released. But Moby, let's inch forward six months beyond where the book ends. Here you have this strange electronic record built on samples of Alan Lomax field recordings, and it surprises everyone. Play becomes a huge hit. Mm-hmm. Ends up selling 10 million copies. Where were you in your life when you realized, hey, people really like this? And it's starting to get commercial radio airplay and all this stuff's happening with the record that nobody expected. It was so baffling because basically before Play was released, I lost my record deal with Elektra. I still had my deal with Mute Records. Mm-hmm. We put out Play and just assumed it was going to fail. Like everyone, we liked it. Like people, everyone told me that, oh, this is a nice record, but it was the time of Limp Biscuit. It was the time of the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> yeah. It you was know. dark days. Yeah. And I made this super weird lo-fi record in my bedroom involving voices that were 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Like not a recipe for success. And then it kept getting more successful. And every time we got more successful, we thought that was it. You know. Can't get any bigger than this. Yeah, we're like, wow, we've so- it sold 100,000 copies worldwide. And then six months later, it was selling 100,000 copies a week. And I couldn't believe it. Like, it was really, it felt like bizarre, almost psychedelic, magical alchemy. You know, that I had <laughs> yeah. combined some old drum machines and synths and old vocals and somehow created this bizarre pop culture phenomena. It just kept getting bigger and it kept getting bigger and it was so much fun and I didn't want it to ever end. Mm. And by 2001, 2002, I was convinced that I'd found the key to happiness, which was staying on tour, staying famous, drinking as much as I could, Mm. taking as many drugs as I could, having as many one-night stands as I could, and just making sure that everybody on the planet loved me as much as they possibly could. (laughs) So it seemed like a very sustainable approach to happiness and well-being. But I remember talking to you during that period, and you seem like the same normal Moby I'd met in 1991 when Go came out. Um, I mean, I guess to an extent I was, but deep down I had developed, I think, a level of like narcissistic entitlement that was really going off the rails. So like, the truth is it was really fun. You know, like when play was happening, 18 was happening, like touring constantly, drinking, doing drugs dating all sorts of inappropriate people. Like, it was really fun. Well, this is why most people enter the music yeah. business. You know? <laughs> you know? And it was, all of a sudden, I was like, had movie stars on speed dial and was getting getting invited to crazy parties. And it was really fun. But every day that I was on the receiving end of all that intention, my I just went more wrong. Mm. Along with depression, anxiety, alcoholism, 
drug addiction. And this is the challenging thing in trying to write the second book is it's already been written. Mm, yeah. You know, the second book is this very conventional narrative of fame, money, alcohol, drugs, etc., and the sort of dissipation and despair that that arises from that. But lots of people have written that book, so I have to figure out now how to write that in a way that has a unique quality to it. You write in very close detail about the way you created some of this music, which I found fascinating. Oh, yeah. Well, because a lot of the music that I write about in the book, the making of it, I still don't know how it got made, you know, which is, I know that's a cliche. Like, musicians will say, like, I don't know who wrote this song. I was just a conduit for it. And I don't know if I was a conduit, more like a bystander. Like, all of a sudden, there's this piece of music. And I was like, I don't know where it came from. Mm. So you can be both like the composer, the musician, but also the first audience member. And I think in writing about the making of these pieces of music, of course, I wanted to mention the technical side, but more I wanted to somehow show or share or represent the emotional side, mm -hmm. you know, because ultimately that's why we like music. That's why we're sitting here is because at an early age, we all decided that music's magical ability to convey emotion is why we wanted to dedicate our lives to it. In other memoirs that I've read, when they just focus on the technical side or the, or the historical context, I'm like, that's interesting, but how did you feel about it? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you explain why people even endeavor to do this when all else feels lost. Like, I've got no reason to make this record other than the fact that it gives me this emotion that I can't feel anywhere else. And mm -hmm. that, you know, very few people sort of address that uh, very basic point. But it seems to me like you would be making music whether people listen to it or not. It seems like there's a basic need within you to do that. Well, especially now. I mean, I'm 50 mm. years old. I hate touring. It's 2016. No one listens to records. And I'm still <laughs> spending all my time making music. My manager, who is German, and we've been working together for 25 years, the strength of our reports, he just insults me. Mm. I, I don't like touring. I don't like DJing. I just want to be alone in my studio making music. And he just ridicules me. He's like, oh, so the middle-aged musician just wants to make <laughs> records. He doesn't want to tour. Like, He's like, what's wrong with you? Like, Go tour. Make some money. But, but, yeah. I, but I just want to be left alone in my studio to work on music because that's the, that's the enjoyable part. Were you smart enough to put away all that money from play so that you don't have to worry about that? I mean, I know you live simply. You know, you'd be happy to go back to uh, the, the early days descriptions of living, squatting in yeah. a warehouse with a bathroom down the hall. But did that put you in a good place forever? Yeah. I mean, I do live a, a relatively simple life. Like, I live in L.A. I have a pretty simple house. I have a car. I don't really like nice things very much. Yeah. I have a blender that helps me make <laughs> smoothies. A really <laughs> nice blender? It's okay. Okay. It's a, it's a Breville. Uh, I got a table where I can sit and read books. Mm -hmm. I have a laptop and I have a bedroom that has equipment in it to make music. I don't really need much more than that. Yeah. But the nice thing is, yeah, so some of the money from play I've saved and invested. But And forgive me if this is crass, but I made one really good investment. The first tour I ever did was with the band The Shaman. 
Hmm. British rave band. And I was their opening act. This was 1992. And we drove from L.A. to Austin. And it was such a miserable drive. It was a 26-hour drive. And they took acid and smoked pot the entire way. And I was this sober non-smoker. So I sat in the back of the bus, like, listening to Nick Drake cassettes, just Mm. being sad. (laughs) And we got to Austin... And I got off the bus, like quivering with exhaustion and hunger. And I walked into the hotel that we had and I walked up to the concierge and I said, I'm so hungry. Is there anywhere around here where I can get vegan food? And he said, oh, there's this local health food store called Whole Foods. It's around the corner. And I walked into (laughs) Whole Foods and it was so beautiful and wonderful. And I called my accountant and I said, there's this company called Whole Foods in Texas are they a publicly traded company? And he said, actually, they've just been listed. So I bought some Whole Foods stock. And so that's one of the things that helps me oh, to not brilliant. tour. <laughs> that is brilliant. So, so veganism led me t- to not having to tour that much. rave, for lack of a better word, scene today, EDM, if we want to use the buzz phrase. Sure. When you have... By the way, I used EDM seriously mm-hmm. recently, and I was almost crucified for it. Apparently, EDM has become this bad acronym. Yeah, yeah we're already past it. Yeah. But yeah. I kind of love it because it's the most reductionist, acronymic description of music. Yeah. Like, just imagine if rock music had been called, like, electric guitar music. Yeah. If jazz was called saxophone piano music. You know, uh, we have these giant super raves. Uh, We have these superstar, uh, you know, something weird about seeing these dance parties that once were organic, independent, underground Mm -hmm. bacchanals now brought to you in Soldier Field here in Chicago. We have one in Soldier Field. I've played at it. You know, it's insane. What do you think about that scene today? Uh... One, I'm 50 years old, so I think demographically, like I'm a sober 50-year-old. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of not allowed to have an opinion, you know, in, in a way. Like, like I'm not the target demographic, so, like, I'm, that's my qualification for that. But also, on one hand, I fully understand the success of it mm. because if you take a 19-year-old kid and put him or her in a field with 50,000 other 19-year-olds all scantily clad and potentially taking Class A narcotics and give them Cirque du Soleil-style crazy pyrotechnics and visuals and flawlessly produced electronic music, of course they're going to have a powerful experience. It is fascinating that... This is the current manifestation of what started with, like, a couple of turntables in a warehouse on the edge of town. Right. Or, or even, in a field. Here yeah. In, in or even going further back, what started in the African-American Latino gay community right. in the 80s. There, there's one aspect of it, and I'm gonna, for a second going to sound like a cranky old guy, is that all the DJs now have to play top 40 records. Like, mm. that's the, th- the thing that breaks my heart the most is that 
when we were all young people going to these events, the DJs were playing underground records that were hits in this scene, but mm. were not. But outside of the scene, no one knew about right. them. Mm-hmm. And the last time I played one of these big events, and this is one of the reasons why I have a really hard time going back, is the DJs all play Katy Perry remixes. Mm. It kind of breaks my heart. Like it would be the equivalent of like going to see the Rolling Stones, and like right. in the middle of their set, the Rolling Stones have to play like a John Mayer song. One of the most remarkable things about the punk rock world, about the hip-hop world, about the early house music and dance music worlds, is everything was being invented every day. You know, like you think of the rave scene, it's like you had all these 20-year-olds figuring out how to cobble together equipment to make records. And then, well, they had their recording, so then they have to figure out how to press it on vinyl and how to ship it around the world. And then they were opening record stores and starting clothing companies, learning how to be promoters. So... It's a very overused acronym, DIY, mm-hmm. but every part of it was DIY. And there was also a sonic novelty. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so it might be borrowing bits and pieces from industrial music or funk music or whatever, but it was a musical vernacular that was being spontaneously, collectively invented. Mm. And to an extent, I think we almost took it for granted. We're like, this is great, but we didn't have a basis of comparison, so we didn't know that was kind of going to be the end of the newness of it. You know, you you write with so much heart and soul and insight about the music you fell in love with, whether it's Bad Brains or whether it's Frankie Knuckles or whether it's Black Disco and House Music, Mm -hmm. and obviously you felt that way about the Alan Lomax samples that made play so magical. And I think that's the thing that's immortal. You know, how they sell it is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Are people still forming their identities and having their lives changed by music. I I hope so. So I got I got to work with Oliver Sacks. Yeah, we yeah. had him as a guest on the show. So he started an organization called the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. Mm-hmm. And they actually look at how music affects the brain and the endocrine system and how it, it affects us. And I've been working with that organization for a long time. The thing that struck me after working with them is like, music changes people like it really does not Mm -hmm. just anecdotally but it actually alters neurochemistry it promotes neurogenesis it decreases stress hormones it promotes growth hormones like it's it's this magic pill Mm -hmm. and it doesn't exist like music technically doesn't exist it's It's ethereal it's in the air it's just these weird air molecules nitrogen and oxygen hitting our eardrum a little differently Mm -hmm. so like if someone has like a jackhammer or if Yo-Yo Ma is playing a cello, they're technically making the same thing. They're pushing air molecules, right. except one makes you want to weep and the other just annoys you. Right. <laughs> so it really is like that, that power of music, which is ineffable and so baffling that it will make people like cut their hair, move across mm-hmm. country, like change their career, ditch a college education have sex, dance, march into war, baptize a child. Like music is involved in all these things and it's just air molecules. And that's why we're sitting here. It's because it has affected us so profoundly so many times and it keeps affecting us. It's that subtext of like, what's going on? How is it that this thing that really 
it doesn't seem to confer any survival benefit. Like there's no evolutionary benefit <laughs> to music that we can see, but yet it makes us cry and dance and do all these crazy things. Yeah. It seems like a very worthwhile pursuit, you know? That was beautiful. I don't know why we even bother to write anymore, Greg. <laughs> I mean, it's more that we, we knew we were never going to make play and send, sell 10 million records, I was, but I mean, at least we had this writing thing down. So pleased to have Moby as our guest on Sound Opinions once again. Thanks so much for coming in. Man. Oh, I love coming here. Yes, yes. Greg, we mentioned that the late Dr. Oliver Sacks was a guest on our show back in 2008 talking about music's effect on the brain. It was a fascinating conversation, and we wanted to play a portion of it. Here's Dr. Sacks telling us how you can tell the difference between a musician's brain and a non-musician's brain by looking at an MRI. And, and it's actually very remarkable because you really can't tell the brain of an Einstein from, from anyone else's. But being in music or being a musician does seem to alter the brain quite visibly and grossly so that all different parts of the brain, the big band of white matter called the corpus callosum between the two hemispheres and the auditory parts of the brain, but also visual parts and motor parts and lower parts like cerebellum, they're all enlarged and you can immediately say this, this, was, this was probably a musician. Although, of course, that leaves open as to whether he's a musician because he had that sort of brain or whether he developed that sort of brain mm-hmm. through music. And the, uh, the answer simply is, is, is some of both. Yeah, that's interesting. So you're saying that you, you may not necessarily be able to train your brain to be a musician's brain. If you, you may be just born with that, but we're not certain what the answer is yet. To some extent, you can train it. I mean, this is clear with people who have a year of Suzuki training. And there was recently, in fact, I just mentioned this in the enlarged paperback of the book. There's been a beautiful case history recently of a, um, a man who was um, frightened off music when he was a boy. He was told he couldn't sing, he had no ear, he wasn't musical. and But 30 years later, he decided to take singing lessons as an experiment and to get brain imaging before and after a year of singing lessons. And to everyone's surprise, especially his own, he did rather well with the singing lessons and joined a choir and, in fact, his brain shows quite amazing changes which developed, you know, in, in middle life. And so even people who imagine they're unmusical and who have got, got to their 40s or 50s or 60s can, in fact, often, you know, develop musicality and the changes in the brain which go with it. Well, and you do tell another anecdotal uh, case history in, in the book of the man who was hit by lightning in, in a phone booth and, and came out to did suddenly find himself incredibly musically prodigious. Um, uh, yeah, um, this was a man who had had very little musical interest or apparently talent before, and he seemed to become transformed, you know, whatever the lightning bolt or the, or the shortage of oxygen, because he had a cardiac arrest for 30 seconds when he was hit by lightning, whatever it did, it, it did something to his brain. You know, he now gives concerts and, and is, um, is very much in love with music. It's it's almost too good to be true. You know, you're hit by lightning, and all of a sudden, you're this hmm. great talent. Um, yeah, well, you know, when he first performed and told his story, half the audience had fantasies that they too would like to be struck by lightning. <laughs> but but it, 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 it's not a good thing on the whole. That's the late Oliver Sacks speaking to us in 2008 about music and the brain. 
Before Dr. Sachs died last year, he also worked with our guest Moby on a music therapy program. And you can hear our entire interview with Oliver Sacks at soundopinions.org. Now we want to hear from you. What do you think about music's power over the mind? What are your memories of the early rave scene? Give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. When we come back, we'll review the new album from the Julie Ruin, and Greg will drop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a track called I Decide from the new Julie Ruin record called Hit Reset. The Julie Ruin, basically another name for Kathleen Hanna and one of her many musical incarnations. She, of course, was the founding member of uh, Bikini Kill, one of the signature bands of the Riot Girl movement. Hannah was very active in that scene in the early 90s. Radical feminist, activist, fanzine writer and editor, spoken word artist, a founder of that Riot Girl movement, as I said, which basically combined the DIY aesthetic of punk with the politics of feminism. After uh, Bikini Kill ended, Hannah experimented with a project she called The Julie Ruin. It was basically a bedroom recording project, put out one album. Uh, sort of paved the way for this new dance punk band that she had in mind, La Tigra, uh, that actually put out a bunch of really fine records in the late 90s, early 2000s. She had a bout with Lyme disease that sidelined at her for a number of years, finally made her musical return in 2010 by putting together the Julie Ruin as a co-ed punk band out of New York City. Their first album came out uh, a few years ago called Run Fast, Hit Reset is the follow-up. We're going to review it in a second, but let's hear a track from it first. It's called Let Me Go on Sound Opinions.
That is Let Me Go from the Julie Ruin. The new album is called Hit Reset. Greg, I have enormous respect for Kathleen Hanna. We recently re-ran our 2011 show about Riot Girl. I, I made this point in that show. I'll make it again. Kathleen Hanna singing in punk rock or garage rock mode, either with Bikini Kill or now with the Julie Ruin. I don't like her voice. I do not mean to be certain in that sexist, it's shrill, it's harpy kind of... I, I just don't think she is a great rock singer okay i love her lyrics it is amazing she what she's hitting reset on here is those years that she lost to lyme disease the abusive childhood that uh, really formed her consciousness she's doing it with great anger like bikini kill always had but also a tremendous humor in that song uh, be nice she is spitting in the face of anybody who would tell her you know why can't you just be nice right mm-hmm. mansplain to her or tell her to behave herself i I also love the line, uh, I can play electric guitar while shaving my legs in a moving car. That's that song, Hello, Trust No One. She is uh, making fun of her own position as a founding feminist of the Riot Girl movement. You know, this is an important artist, and I think uh, if you have any interest at all in strong uh, uh, rock and roll, period, I was going to say strong women in rock, I mean, they transcend that. This is She's an important figure, period. You should listen to it, but it, that makes it a triad. I can't say buy it. You know, the, the voice has never really bothered me. It's a, it's a sassy, you know, some would say a girlish voice. She sounds younger than she actually is when, when, she, when she opens her mouth to sing. But that's never been a problem for me. Uh, there's a lot of attitude there, a lot of a spirit of fun, at the same time anger. I find those kind of conflicting emotions very appealing on mm-hmm. a lot of levels. But I also think, Jim, what mitigates that to an extent on this record is the musical variety. First of all, there's a lot of harmony singing on this. You know, the, the, there's a direct shout out there in some ways to, you know, the girl group harmonies of the 60s, you know, the Shangri-Las or, or, or something like that. She's making this uh, homage to ESG, that great new wave mm-hmm. uh, neo-funk band from the 80s in, in Time Is Up. The musical variety in this record, I don't think she's ever attempted a record as broad-ranging as this. I think the Julie Ruin has really opened her up musically, and also the vulnerability. Um, you know, some people uh, who know Kathleen Hanna from the Riot Girl days may sneer at a song like Calverton. We've mm. never heard that sense of vulnerability from Kathleen Hanna on a record. So open. Uh, apparently about the relationship she has uh, with her husband who pulled her out of some really dark stuff and it's beautiful to hear somebody open up this way I think that Kathleen Hanna is an artist whose musical life has really been a journey. Three very distinctive bands here, 
and showing new emotional shades with each one. I hate to say something like maturing, but there's definitely a sense of growth with each record that uh, Kathleen Hanna has worked on, and I think this is a buy-it record for me. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible, one of us takes a trip to the desert island, puts a quarter in the jukebox, and plays you a tune we can't live without. Greg, it's your turn. What do you got? Thanks, Jim. I've been uh, binging on Guy Clark music the last couple of months. Ever since we got the word that Guy Clark died at the age of 74, uh, May 17th, I really wanted to pay uh, tribute to the greatness of this guy, because I think he is one of the unheralded greats of Texas singer-songwriters. You hear a lot of attention paid to everybody from Willie Nelson to even Towns Van Zant uh, is celebrated in the years since his death. But Guy Clark sort of was, uh, you know, less of a well-known public figure, but he was absolutely revered within that scene. I got to meet Guy a few times in our travels to Austin, Texas over the years, and he was, uh, everybody respected this guy's songs. I mean, he, he wrote the best songs. And also, in terms of his generosity to his fellow artists, when he lived in Nashville for a while, his home was kind of like a way station for up-and-coming artists and musicians. They could all spend time there, work on their songs, and learn from from Guy Clark. Two guys named Rodney Crowell and Steve Earle Mm. used to just hang out with this guy and hang on his every word. It is not an overstatement to say that he mentored uh, those two gentlemen and into uh, the careers that they ended up having. Uh, they would all point back to Guy Clark as saying, this guy taught me how to write songs. He was in his mid-30s by the time his first album came out. It appeared in 1975. It was called Old Number One, and it included the song I'm Going to Play, I think one of his greatest songs. The entire album basically distilled what Guy Clark's subject matter was about. All these songs were about drifters and rebels and outsiders. You know, very Texas-oriented, because he grew up in Texas, in terms of this wide-open plain, people who didn't belong anywhere were kind of searching for answers. It, it was that kind of time. You know, when people say, I hate country music, you know, I go, have you listened to Guy Clark? Mm. Because here's a guy who's coming out of country in a, in a tradition informed by folk, but also the blues. You know, it's that famous Towns Van Zant line. There's the blues and there's zippity-doo-dah. You know, <laughs> nothing else really matters. And there was that sense of lived-in earthiness. And also, the songwriting didn't need any prettying up. You know, if you had a great song, you got out of the way of that song. You gave it as sparse a treatment as possible. And some people may say, well, it's so uh, ramshackle, it's so raw, the voice isn't pretty. Listen to the song. I mean, this song, Desperado's Waiting on the Train, a, a, a beautiful song about his grandmother's boyfriend in his last years on this planet. He basically took up uh, Guy Clark as a boy and taught him about life from his perspective. You know, he'd take him to bars. He'd, you know, he'd, he'd take him on fishing trips. They would, they would hang out together. Uh, Guy Clark learned about life from this guy, and he saw this gentleman, you know, whiling away his later years with a sense of regret and feeling like he hadn't accomplished anything. 
And it was Guy Clark's way of saying, no, you, you did accomplish something. You did matter in, in at least one person's life. It's Desperados waiting on the train from Guy Clark on Sound Opinions. And I'd play the Red River Valley And he'd sit in the kitchen and cry Run his fingers through seventy years of living And wonder, Lord, as ever well I drill gone dry With friends, me and this old man Was like desperados waiting for a train Like desperados waiting for Well, he's a drifter and a driller boy wells And an old school man of the world He taught me how to drive his car when he's too drunk to And he'd wink Give me money for the girls And our lives was like some old western movie Like desperados waiting for a train Like desperados waiting for a train That is Guy Clark with Desperados Waiting on the Train, my Desert Island jukebox pick on Sound Opinions. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit and a performance from Tortoise. Sound Opinions was produced by Brendan Banasek, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Daphne McLean. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Jim and Greg, I just finished listening to the episode about campaign songs. In terms of campaign songs that I personally would recommend, I can think of no song better than Stakes is High. By De La Soul. I think that smiling in public is against the law. Cause love don't get you through life no more. It's who you know and how you son. And how you getting in and who the man holding he up. And how was the skin and how high you what up how I heard you caught a body. Seem like every man and woman shared a life with John God. Stakes is high just turned 20 years this month. And it remains as fresh sounding as the day I first heard it. And every time I hear it. It creates a real sense of urgency, as uh, some of the best songs should, particularly songs that a uh, campaign might use when they're trying to incite and affect real change. This is Zach from Austin. You guys put on a great show. Thanks a lot.
Hi, this is Deborah in Austin, Texas, calling about uh, great campaign songs. Absolutely, Let the River Run by Carly Simon, uh, the theme song from Working Girl. Thank you. Bye. Hi, this is Scott from Kansas City. I suggest It's a Long Way from the Top by ACDC. Thank you. For a campaign song, uh, I highly recommend a little-known song by Chicago called Vote For Me. It's a real stunner. It's got a gospel choir in the background, and Bobby Lamb plays, sings it and plays the organ, and it's just a really celebratory song about voting for president. Um, my name is Julie. I live in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Okay, bye. If I elected, this is how it would be. I cut your tax in half. Hey, my name is Dan, and um, I'd like to just say, uh, how could you have forgotten John Lennon, like one of the most revolutionary people ever? John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, forgot all of them, but uh, especially John Lennon, uh, I would say his song, um, Just Give Me Some Truth, that's a really good one. All right, later. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.